Father in heaven, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we boldly approach the eternal throne and bring our thanksgivings and our petitions before Thee. Thank You for Your mercy toward young Matthew in pursuing a new profession, Heavenly Father, and blessing him for his master's sake and for his sake to pass his certifying tests. And there'll be more, O Lord, and we'll be asking you again for them. We thank you that Angela was able to hear the comforting and confirming words from her doctor that all is well with their little baby. We bless and praise your holy name. We have miracle children in this church, and we thank you for them. And we thank you for all those that Outwardly may not appear miraculous, but it's all a miracle. For we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you have seen our substance yet unformed and, and formed it according to what is written in your book for each of us. We thank and praise you. We thank you for the ninth chapter of Romans. That we can meet thee this way and know thee as thou art. And that we are not misled with the senile grandfather on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, nor are we misled by the pitiful caricature of the Son of God that is painted in so many places. We're thankful to see thee as a potter, and we as the clay. And Father in heaven, we do not mind being the clay in thy hands. And if you were to send our souls to hell, thy righteous law approves it well. But we have a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, and our hope is no bare guessing at it. We're thankful that you have put in our hearts a love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and we freely confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that you have raised him from the dead, and we believe that we have the evidence of eternal life. Heavenly Father, help us to make our calling and election sure that as we work through Romans 9, there will be no doubting, children of yours in this assembly, but we might all be persuaded that you will keep that which we've committed unto thee against the Lord Jesus Christ in that day. We are bound to give thanks, Heavenly Father, because you have chosen us from the beginning through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth to salvation, and we thank thee for this. Father in heaven, as we read your precious word, We see how exceeding broad it is, and we see the inspired wisdom of Paul's preface to this chapter, and we ask you to give us this wisdom, that we might have it in our dealings with all others, in our families and outside of our families, in our jobs and with our brothers in this church. Have mercy upon us, Heavenly Father. You have promised us that if we ask, if we lack wisdom and we ask of thee, you will give it to us liberally, and you will not upbraid us for the request. We also pray that you would teach us wise and sober godly speech, the proper place of swearing, oaths and vows, and that we would not let any filthy communication, foolish talking or jesting, be named once among us as saints. O Lord, give us a conscience like the Apostle Paul and faithfulness to that candle that you have put within us to light our way. Heavenly Father, grant that we will humble ourselves before our conscience, that we will instruct our conscience, that we will preserve and keep it from searing it, that we will obey it, that we will be more perfect in thy sight as our brother was. Let us say at the end of this week, I have lived in all good conscience since Sunday. 
Because, Father, we must confess to Thee and have mercy upon us that we have sinned flagrantly, presumptuously, and violently against our consciences at times in the past. And we pray that You would forgive us and lead us into paths of righteousness for Thy namesake, using that little member within us to help us. And, Father, we pray for compassion for souls, and we pray for souls. We see Paul praying for his kinsmen, And we have parents in this church, in fact, all of us parents, have great longings for our children, whether they are present or absent. But those that are absent, Heavenly Father, we pray special effort on your part to convert them and to bring them back to full repentance and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our heart's desire, and it is a burden to us, and we pray for that burden to be increased. But, O Lord, we pray for the souls of our children, that they will love Thee more and more each day, that they will love righteousness, that they will hate this world and all the ungodliness in it, that they will recognize ungodly friends and the horrible danger they are, that they will remember the lessons of their fathers and their pastor, that they will humble themselves before the Word of God, esteeming all of its precepts to be right and hating every false way, Lord, put a hedge about each of them and save them from this world. Stir them up in their hearts as you did the men of old and as you have us. Heavenly Father, convict them by the Holy Spirit, by the preaching, by the Word of God, by their parents' instruction, and give the parents wisdom, godliness, and a proper balance of authority and affection to win their children. Let us be like our brother Paul, who spent his life enduring all things for the elect's sake. Heavenly Father, we are not members of a nation like him that had great privileges from thee, but we have families that have had great privileges from thee, and we pray that we would love every member of those families and seek for their salvation and conversion. Preserve our nation. Father, have mercy upon all of us economically. Have mercy upon all of us religiously that we might continue to come into thy house and preach whatever thy word has to say. That we will not have to modify or be tempted to modify anything. O Lord, bless our leaders with wisdom. Overrule them when their intentions are against us. And for the sake of righteous people in this nation, preserve it. As you would have preserved Sodom and Gomorrah for but ten souls. Our Father, there's things in our bulletin, there's things in our hearts, there's things not in our hearts because we do not even know what we have need of, but we know that you know. And we are boldly in thy presence, and we ask thee to have mercy upon us, and bless us and help us, and give us the desires of our heart. But, O Lord, make those desires first, to walk with thee, to delight in thee, to be spiritually minded, to live according to heaven, not to mind earthly things, to be full of the Holy Ghost, and to bear much fruit. Let those be the things first on our lips, chief in our hearts, that you grant us. And we know that we'll be content with our lives. And then whatever else we need, that you in mercy and wisdom see that we could handle, give that to us in your good timing. Our trust is in thee. Bless us in this assembly, that every word that comes out of this pulpit and every thought 
about all of us regarding those words will be profitable and pleasing to Thee and that we will leave this place for the better and not for the worse. Prepared to live for Thee. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's turn back to James chapter 3 that I read to you to open this assembly a few minutes ago. James, the third chapter. The Lord willing, and if the Lord continues to lead me this way, I would like to preach a number of messages, not dealing with things in all the depth that we have before, or that how they could be dealt with, but to remind us of some aspects of godliness that would be profitable for us in these second assemblies, such as our marriages, our work ethic, our tongue, which we want to take up right now for an assembly, our speech. Reminders of godliness. The Apostle Peter said that as long as he was alive, he would not stop bringing things to their remembrance. And he said it three different ways in three verses out of five in Second Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 12 and ending that chapter. And that's the scriptural pattern for all of us. We forget things. We need reminders. And I would like to share some of those things with you in our second assemblies and press us on toward godliness. Right. That song we just sang, Broad is the Road That Leads to Destruction. You never sang that in Sunday School, McKinley? Either did I. What a song. Um, but that's just that's the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take up our cross daily and follow Him. Right. There be few that find the straight and narrow way. Most want the, broad, the wide gate and the broad way that leads to destruction. Thousands are there that go in thereat. And once in a while we find a, a straggler or a stranger in the uh, straight and narrow way as we sang in that song. James chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 2 down through verse 10. You've already heard them once. Let's hear them again. Now you can look at them as, and follow along with me. I'm going to start with the second sentence in the second verse. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea, is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison." Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Amen. 
Do you want to be a perfect man or a perfect woman? We start with our mouths, according to that second verse. We have the examples in verses 3 and 4 of horses. You can turn a 1,200-pound horse that is several times stronger than you are rather easily with reins attached to a bit against its lips. And a ship, though large, very large, and though driven with great winds, you can steer it with a small helm. The governor being the captain of the ship and directing where that ship should go. Even so, like a bridle or a bit for a horse, like a helm for a ship, the tongue is a little member, but it boasts great things. In the last part of verse 5, forest fires start with one match, according to Smokey the Bear and James 3, 5. Right. What horrible things can be caused by the tongue. And then the apostle, do you know that if you ever want a lesson in transitional sentences or moving from one topic or aspect of a topic to another, the Bible is full of it. Because having mentioned the word fire, look what it then does in verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body. We can say things and it arouses every passion and movement of our whole bodies. We can let things out of our lips that truly affect our entire lives. And it sets on fire the course of nature. The wickedness that resides in us can be provoked by provoking words. And it is set on fire of hell. James isn't very nice, is he? James is pretty harsh. But if we're honest, we know that he's saying the truth. And verse 7 goes on to describe that all kinds of animals and creatures have been tamed. But verse 8 says the tongue is difficult to tame. There it says it's impossible. No man can do it. It's an unruly evil. It's full of deadly poison. So that we end up blessing God on Sunday mornings and on the way home we're cursing men that are made after the similitude of God. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Amen. Let us this day, with the wisdom of Romans 9.1, and the oath of Romans 9.1 and the conscience of 9.1 and the compassion for others of 9.1 guard our tongues. I want to give you some reminders beginning today. I want you to remember Psalm 119 and verse 28, 128 from this past Wednesday evening. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right and I hate every false way. I trust that you will esteem what I have to say about your tongue what we just read, and some other things that we're going to read, that we'll esteem God to be right about our tongues, and that we'll hate any other use of our tongues than what God justifies. Lord, help us to that end. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I have material for a lengthy series on speech. You're going to get one sermon. And it will be done on time. You follow along with me, please. This is the word of God. It's not the word of Jonathan Crosby. Jonathan Crosby trembles before these words like you tremble before them. I was taught a verse before long before, well, well, sometime before I was ordained. I can say, and I say this in a way that I hope you understand, it's a verse in the Bible I don't like. I hope you know how I mean that. 
It's, I love it. I want to esteem it right, and I want to hate every false way. Matthew 10, Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 19. In the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin. Right. By the time I get home on a Sunday evening, a few words have passed my lips. And the Bible says, in the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin, meaning things came out that I should have said differently. Things came out that I shouldn't have said at all. Things that should have been said weren't said, and so forth. We want to humble ourselves before a statement like that. In a multitude of words. Do you know what one of the safest rules for you to follow is? Cut your words in half. One of the best things you can do is to speak less. Now, there might be five or ten of you in here that I don't mean that to. You could speak a little bit more and it'd be okay with all of us. We'd like to know you a little bit better. But for the majority in here, cut your words in half is a good starting point. In Matthew chapter 5, I want to tell you why I want to preach a series of messages called Reminders. It's verse 19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven." This is the Sermon on the Mount, and the Lord Jesus Christ takes up preaching. After this introduction, he deals with unjustified anger in verse 21, down through verse 26, as against the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. He deals with fantasies about women or men, sexual fantasies, and abuse of divorce laws in verses 27 through 32, against the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. I want to deal with verses 33 through 37. Here the Lord Jesus Christ just lists matter or or issue after issue after issue, corrects the Pharisee abuse. He takes the most conservative denomination of the Jews' religion and points out that they are not conservative at all in comparison to his holy religion. And we want to keep that in mind. I read to you, Verses 33 through 37 of Matthew 5. Again, he's mentioned two errors. That about unjustified anger and that about unlawful fantasies. So he's got another point to bring up of their errors. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. We have been to the Sermon on the Mount in the past. The Lord Jesus Christ is not correcting Moses' law. The Lord Jesus Christ is not modifying Moses' law. 
the Lord Jesus Christ is correcting the Pharisees' interpretational abuse of Moses' law. They would say, like verse 27, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Notice that Jesus does not say, It is written, Thou shalt not commit adultery. He is dealing with the Pharisees and the scribes, which he told you he was dealing with in verse 20. Ye have heard that it hath been said, the oral tradition of the Pharisees was that you shouldn't commit adultery. And that is, while married, going and having sex with another person that is married. But they had nothing against unlawful fantasies and abusing the divorce laws to get yourself at a spouse that you didn't deserve. And the Lord Jesus Christ added those two things, along with the actual sin of adultery, and that would be mental adultery by having a sexual fantasy about someone you're not married to and don't have a right to, and using divorce laws to get a spouse that you don't deserve. That's an example. When we come to verses 33 through 37, Jesus Christ is not overthrowing the law. The law commanded men to swear. It was an order, because swearing is an act of worship. It is taking the name of the highest authority you know to add validity and confirmation to your words. Proper swearing. Proper swearing is for a serious matter. It's only in the name of God, and you always perform what you have said you're going to do, and you have pure religion that is worth using the name of God in your oath. I'll be established, I'll be repeating that several times. The Jews, by tradition, had promoting, promoted swearing for all sorts of little insignificant aspects of life. Let me see if I can give you an example. Have you ever heard someone say, bless you, when they sneezed? That is sick. That is witchcraft. That is blasphemy. There's only one source of blessing in the world, and it's from God. And you don't need it when you sneeze. But you've heard people say that. Well, the Jews were notorious for it. And that is what Jesus Christ is correcting. That is, this is what Jesus Christ is condemning. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the most dangerous passages in the Bible because people go in there without understanding the intent of the Lord Jesus Christ and they come out with false doctrine. Right. For instance, in verse 38, it says, Ye have heard it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Notice he doesn't say it is written. You have heard that it hath been said. So they're taking what was written and they're applying it incorrectly through their oral tradition. Right. Are you with me on this? I don't have time to waste on this. I, I, I've taught this before, but it's very important. Because that is scripture. But it's not scripture Jesus is correcting. It's the oral Teachings of the Pharisees and scribes that were misapplying those verses of Scripture. Verse 39, But I say unto you that ye resist not evil. What do those kind of words do to people? That ye resist not evil. We end up with a bunch of pacifists. They won't go to war. They won't take up arms. They won't call the police. Listen, if you're not going to resist evil, you can't spank your children. We can't do anything in this church in the way of dis discipline. You're, you're, you're hopeless. But it says, resist not evil. Do you understand enough that it doesn't really mean that? 
That is an absolute statement with relative application. And this sermon is full of examples like that. Full of them. How about in 634 when it says, Take therefore no thought for the morrow. Take no thought for the morrow. Do you have anything in your refrigerator? Beyond what you're going to eat today? You're taking thought for the morrow. You're wrong. Any of you using a day timer? Or am I outdated when I say day timer? Most of you have electronic gadgets that are your day timers. But you know, day timers are for tomorrow and the next day. I'm giving you a couple of examples. I could go through every one of his lessons and point out that if you're not careful with his language, you'll end up in heresy, and you'll end up in heresy with verses 33 through 37 unless you're careful with his language. The Mennonites, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and the Quakers all take verses 33 through 37 in an absolute way and apply them absolutely that no oath, vow, or swearing is ever allowed for any occasion, for any purpose. They will not take an oath in our courts based on this passage and James chapter 5 and verse 12 that says the same thing. The Lord Jesus Christ is not overthrowing the law. The law commanded swearing and told them how and in what name. Thou shalt swear in the name of the Lord thy God. Look at Numbers chapter... Now let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I just want to show you that. I don't want to say anything without, without proving it. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is where, this is where we study the Bible a little differently than people who go into it for the sound of words. Right. We want the sense of the words. Jesus is not saying that anything more than yes or no is wrong. He is saying anything more than yes or no for the type of things that the Pharisees swore about right. was wrong. Because they were swearing about nothing. And because they were swearing about nothing, they had brought up objects that were nothing, like their head. Oh, my head. On my head, I'll do it. Ridiculous. By the throne of God. By the city of Jerusalem. By the gold of the altar. We're going to get to that passage in a minute. That sounds like a Jew. Deuteronomy chapter 6, that's the Bible. The Bible says that they would be made a byword and a proverb throughout all nations for their for their table, meaning their money changing tables being a snare unto them. Deuteronomy chapter six and verse thirteen: Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God and serve Him, and shalt swear by His name. There's more that can be multiplied. That's a commandment to swear. To swear by God's name, in the name of the Lord Jehovah, as the Lord liveth. How many times have you read that in the Old Testament? As the Lord liveth. Is it a capital O-R-D when you read that? As the Lord Jehovah liveth. That's all you had to say. Will you do this as the Lord liveth? We use it in our own marriage covenants and vows that we make to one another when we get married. Our generation needs this kind of preaching. You need this kind of preaching. Look at Leviticus chapter 24. I need to keep moving because I have lots to say in few minutes. Leviticus chapter 24. We are not going to take the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and reduce them in their power and authority. We're going to increase it because he's going to be very careful and he's going to, he's going to blow away the Pharisees in their abuse 
of the laws of swearing from the Old Testament. I just want to get your attention and think. I think I might be able to with this passage. Story time from the pulpit of the Church of Greenville. These are the only stories that I want to tell you about. Leviticus 24 and verse 10. Let's have a story time. And the son of an Israelitish woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel. And this son of the Israelitish woman and a man of Israel strove together in the camp. And the Israelitish woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And they brought him unto Moses. And his mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in ward, that the mind of the Lord might be showed them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Bring forth him that hath cursed without the camp. And let all that heard him lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curseth his God shall bear his sin. And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him, as well the stranger as he that is born in the land, when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. That's story time from the Bible. Serious business, isn't it? So we had a half-breed. We had a mixed one. Mother was an Israelite. Father was an Egyptian. Part of the mixed multitude. And a result of the mixed multitude of those that traveled with Israel. He got in a fight with an Israelite man. When you're in a fight, your passions are stirred up. Yeah, and things can pop out of your mouth that shouldn't pop out of your mouth. And this man cursed the name of the Lord. They didn't know for sure what to do with him. It was in the passion of a fight. Things are said when you're fighting mad that you wouldn't say at other times. So they put him in ward, the detention center. What do we do with him, Lord? Stone him. I don't care if it's a stranger or if it's a homegrown Israelite. You don't blaspheme the name of the Lord. I hope I have your attention. Isaiah would say that woe is him, for he was a man of unclean lips in Isaiah chapter 6. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He felt the woe for his speech when he stood in the presence of the living God. The first heresy of the Jews was to make swearing a common act for almost any inconsequential matter. And that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible expects you to swear only when it's a matter of controversy about something important. The Bible teaches us that in Hebrews chapter 6. Please look there with me. Hebrews chapter 6, where the Lord explains why He swore. Do you know that the Lord swore? The Lord swore in goodness to Abraham, so that you would have greater consolation that he is going to keep his promises toward you. He swore with an oath, Frank, so that you would know he is going to keep his word. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. He also swore in his wrath. You mean you can swear in your wrath sometimes? The Lord did. He swore in his wrath against the nation of Israel that came out of Egypt that they would never get into the land of Canaan. He would kill every single one of them and take in their children. And it's called swearing in his wrath. In Numbers, in Psalm 95, 
in Hebrews 3 and in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 6, 16. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. The Lord swore, and he confirmed his promise of eternal life by an oath. Now verse 16 will tell us the purpose of an oath. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. If there's a disagreement between two men, like in court, you have two witnesses, you swear them both to tell the the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, and you hope that by calling God to record, it helped in these days that if you lied, you were probably going to be exposed and killed in a few minutes. But an oath would come upon men to tell the truth. And so the Lord is saying, to end the strife or to end the doubt or to end your lack of faith in my promise of eternal life given through Abraham, he confirmed it with an oath. And since he couldn't swear by anyone greater, he simply said, surely blessing, I will bless thee. He couldn't, who could he swear by except himself? Surely blessing, I will bless thee. We say, so help me God. God can't say, so help me God. And God can't say, so help me angels, because that's not appealing to a higher authority. So he appeals to himself, surely, blessing, I will bless thee. That's how much the Lord loves you. He wants you to know without a doubt that he is going to keep his promises because he swore with an oath. And it's wonderful. Verse 18 says that by two immutable things, immutable, something that can't be changed or altered, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, he promised and he swore with an oath. The second heresy of the Jews was to swear by all sorts of objects rather than God alone. Let's go to Matthew chapter 23 so that we can see their errors more perfectly and understand what the Lord Jesus Christ was condemning. Matthew chapter 23. Their second error. The first error was they were swearing for things that didn't deserve an oath. You should just, that's why he said yes or no. Anything more than yes or no is evil. Because in all the ordinary conversation, you shouldn't say anything but yes or no. I listened to a sermon in the last day or two. And I was greatly grieved coming away from that sermon by a man I regard because somewhere between five and ten times in in his preaching, between 45 and 60 minutes, he said, God forsaken and God knows repeatedly for late things that you shouldn't say that about. And I'm saying it to you. In all the little things, you don't have to say God is my witness. You only have to say that when there is a conflict and there is strife that you need to settle with an oath. Otherwise, yes or no. We believe that it's a commandment to swear. We believe that it's an act of worship to swear. We believe that Paul swore. And I hope I took sufficient time this morning for you to understand why Paul swore in Romans 9.1 because he was just about to say something you can hardly believe. I could wish that myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's why he attached that oath. 
In chapter 1, I explained to you why he attached that oath. God is my witness. That I have tried to come and see you and I pray for you people all the time. Though you wonder why, living in the capital of this empire, I haven't made it to Rome yet. Don't you say, God knows. God is my witness. God forsaken. Don't you invoke the name of God unless it is a true conflict and you are soberly, carefully going to invoke God to confirm your word. Matthew 23. That was, that was heresy one about swearing, about little things when you shouldn't. Heresy number two is swearing by things other than God. Anytime you swear by something other than God, you are saying that thing is as great as you can think of in order to confirm your word. And God is jealous and gets offended when you say anything else as an expletive or as an oath in order to confirm your word and try to showing somebody that you will perform or that what you're saying is true, God is jealous. He wants to be the object of our swearing. did, Did you remember the words, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and thou shalt swear by Him, because it's an act of worship. Matthew 23, Woe unto you, verse 16, Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple... It is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Look at that exclamation point. Oh, they were, yes, they were really convinced about this doctrine of theirs. Verse 17, ye fools and blind, the Lord Jesus Christ would say. Does it say that anybody that calls another brother a fool in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22 shall be in danger of hellfire? We need to rightly divide our Bibles, don't we? Or we're going to end up with the Lord Jesus Christ in hellfire. What's to be understood in Matthew chapter 5 about calling somebody a fool? Thank you. Without a cause. Because it starts out that verse by saying, Whosoever is angry with his brother, without a cause. Okay. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? They would say, the gold, because it makes the temple valuable. Jesus would say, it's the temple that makes the gold valuable. I love our Lord, don't you? Verse 18, and whosoever shall swear by the altar, this is what they would do, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift? Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. Though you have tried to reduce... Though you have tried to reduce the responsibility to perform your oaths by coming up with these other things, do you see how Jesus, by logical connection, takes it all the way back from the gold to the temple to the God that dwells in the temple? So they were swearing by God indirectly, and there was no way out. 
They could not say, it is nothing. Because no matter where they started, they end up with God. This is the reasoning of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's logical. I hope you like it, Jonathan. How that the Lord Jesus would deal in such a way as to go from a, a gift on an altar, to the altar, to the God that's worshipped by the altar, so that there's no way out of that vow. Right. He's condemning the wrong object. And this is the passage that Jesus is going after. This is the, the problems of the Pharisees that Jesus was condemning in Matthew chapter 5 and that James condemned in James 5 and verse 12 when he also said, Swear not at all, for anything more than yes or no is sin. He's talking about little things. Don't swear. Just say yes or no. And then, if you're going to swear, there's only one object to swear by, God himself. Then there's only one thing to do. Perform your oaths. And there's only one way to live consistent with that God's religion. And so we have the rules for swearing, briefly and simply put. Some of you are saying, I can't believe what we just read. They were swearing by heaven. I know you've never heard that, have you? You've never heard anyone say, heavens, my heavens, heavens to Betsy. Oh yes, you have, haven't you? You have. I think the Bible's a pretty neat book. Amen. How did Jesus know that? That we were going to have Pharisees in the 21st century. Heavens to Betsy. Why would you say that? We don't care about Betsy. We care about the God that inhabits heaven. Right. And you just brought the word heaven into your conversation. Somebody told you something that surprised you. And you said, heavens to Betsy. You cannot believe that they would swear by the earth. For land's sake, my lands, oh yes. Brethren, a little reminder today. This is an unruly evil. Who owns all the cattle on a thousand hills? It's the Lord God of heaven. And so when you're popping out with my lands this and my lands that for some little insignificant event or, or aspect of conversation, you're guilty. You're guilty of what the Lord Jesus Christ was really going after. Let us be careful and cautious. Anything in ordinary conversation and business, anything more than positives or negatives leads to sin. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mennonites, and the Quakers are wrong. They have misinterpreted this passage. That passage says, If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. I'll hand you the spoon if you want to be a Mennonite when it comes to that passage. The spoon is for your eyeball. It says that. Does it mean that? It's a metaphor. It's hyperbole. It's an illustration that something as precious to you as your eye, if it tempts you to sin, pluck it out and throw it from you. Get it out of your life. This is how the Lord Jesus Christ tells us to take up our cross and follow Him. If there is something as precious as your right eye, or as useful as your right hand, cut it off and cast it from thee. It is better for you, in Jesus' analogy here and metaphor, it's better to go into heaven without a right eye than to go into hell with both of your eyes. 
So those things that you think are important in this life of only 70 years duration, throw them out, cut them off, mortify the deeds of your flesh, lest you be tempted to sin. Because it's better to go to heaven without those things while having lived a life on earth without them than to miss heaven because you are protecting those things on earth. Jesus knows all about what is evidence and what the conditions of eternal life are. He's the condition of eternal life. He's making a point to you. Don't get misled by the theological implications. He wasn't teaching theology. He was teaching the mortification of sin, putting it to death. I don't have, I can't say more on that. Swearing in the Bible is any verbal act of appeal or promise that references God to add weight to your words. Proper swearing is requires the proper occasion, something very seriously where there is some sort of a conflict or strife where you need to invoke the highest authority that you can to verify your words. We do it in court. We do it when we marry. Because that's a very serious thing. When you young couples, and there were ten of you in the last five years, when you young couples were married, we swore you that you would treat your spouse a certain way. And we were very thorough. And I think we said on average about 10 to 12 times each spouse. What were those four words? Was that with a capital L-O-R-D? Yeah, yeah, I thought so. As the Lord liveth. You swore yourselves because that's a 50, 60, 70 year decision. And it's very serious to us. We never want to see a divorce. We never want to see a dysfunctional marriage. We want to see loving spouses and godly marriages. And that's serious enough to get some oaths out of us. And so we did it. We do it when we go to court. So help me God. The proper object is always the Lord God of heaven. We need to reject everything else that comes out of our mouths that we use for emphasis. Do you know what kind of stuff we use for emphasis? And I know I've taught this before, but all those of you that know where I'm going, remember, I have a congregation that's growing all the time, and I haven't preached this in many years. Now listen to me. We let stuff fly out of our mouths when we're surprised, when we're hurt, when we're trying to make and impress somebody. We will dig deeper into our language to try to make a point. So what we're doing is we are now swearing by the wrong object, at the wrong time, because the event is not big enough to call for real swearing. And so we use the wrong object. Remember that God's name includes His attributes. You shouldn't be using holiness. There is nothing holy but the Lord. There is nothing. There is no one good but the Lord. Don't you tell anybody about your goodness. My goodness. Have you ever... Did Jesus say this? Did a man once come to him and say that, uh, good master, what did Jesus draw from that little two-word statement? Are you calling me God? Is that the bottom line of what Jesus did? Are you calling me God? Because there's only one that's good. Do we say stuff like that? Heavens. Hell. Lands. Jupiter. Man. That was a common one. My brother and me. Man this. 
Man that. Swearing by man? And when were we saying it? When we were trying to settle some conflict in court? Sorry, you're thinking too highly of both of us. I'm not making this up. Did you see how Jesus reasoned from the gift on the altar, the gold in the temple, all the way into heaven? By George. Jumping catfish. Damn. Great day in the morning. Great balls of fire. Jumping Jehoshaphat. Suffering succotash. Amazing. Don't. Let's walk out of here and clean up our lo- our mouths. Let your speech be yea and nay. Yes and no. Anything more than that comes of evil in little things. When it comes to a big thing like Romans chapter 9 or Romans chapter 1, there's a place. When it comes to a wedding vow, there's a place. When it comes to court, there's a place. But until we get there, yes and no, and let us speak the words of truth so that we don't even have to say to people, I lie not. Reject euphemisms. Those were common words that are used for the purpose of swearing by emphasis or expletive. Here's another category. Reject euphemisms that are used for God or for Jesus Christ. You know, I come from Michigan. Most everyone's a Catholic. You would think that my whole bank were Christians because they were always saying, Jesus Christ. That doesn't happen very often in Greenville, South Carolina. Not like up there. Common speech in the north. Because Catholics have no regard for the name of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you let anybody say that. These are euphemisms for the name of God and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or other swear words. Gal. Golly. Gee. Golly gee. Jeez. Gee whiz. Help me. That's a euphemism for something. Is it cheese whiz? Or is it Jesus Christ? And they're hiding behind a euphemism. Gosh. Where did gosh come from? From slosh? Or from God? Darn. Dang. Dog nabbit. Just rearrange a few letters. Is that God damn it? Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy Christmas. Jesus, Joseph, and Mary. Lordy, Lordy. Shoot. You need help spelling? Sugar. Foot. Friggin'. Freakin'. Some I'm leaving off. Reject blasphemous words. My goodness. Gracious. There is one source of graciousness in the universe, and it's God. One source of grace. 
and it's God. You have just invoked one of his attributes by saying that. Goodness gracious, sakes alive, holy cow, holy Moses, bless you, holy Toledo, my word, your word, your word's trash, so is mine. My word? It's God's word that's of value. The Bible says, let God be true, but every man, a liar. So why are you saying my word? Can we clean it up a little bit? It's just a reminder. It's all, that's all I'm good for in this series is a few little reminders about our speech. There's a place for swearing, and when we swear, we're going to do it well. And when we have marriage covenants, I think we do it pretty well. We're pretty thorough, as the Lord liveth. I don't want to hear, I will. I want to hear, as the Lord liveth. I will. As the Lord liveth, I do. Yes. We want to reject sex acts, sex organs, and human or animal excrement. For the use is profane and stupid. It's filthy communication, and it should not proceed out of our mouths. Do you know what it means when you say something that refers to human or animal dung? Do you know what you're saying when you appeal to the coital act between a man and a woman? You're appealing to an authority higher than you. So what you're saying is you're lower than a bull's excrement. When you use a bull's excrement in order to make a point that you are very serious, and you say those two words, and I'm showing you a little bit of discretion. If it was a men's meeting, it would be different. But you say those words, you are appealing, because remember, an oath is appealing to a higher authority to add credibility to your words. So you're saying that you are less than, in value, a bull's excrement. What about cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye? Well, listen, if if you're in a situation where you have to convince someone that you're telling the truth, as God is my witness... As the Lord liveth, I'm telling you the truth, but you only do that if it is a serious matter. On my mother's grave, what's your mother got to do with truthfulness? I have a grave of a mother, but if you ever hear me preach something or say something on my mother's grave, question it diligently. Why in the world would I be appealing to that for truthfulness? Even though I loved my mother, my mother was a woman of truth. And what authority or value will she keep you from lying? The proper religion. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.19, Let everyone with the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So we want to have the right religion. We want to have the right action. And that is to keep our vows. When we, The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 that God doesn't require very many vows. And it's okay not to vow, but if you vow, you better pay what you have vowed. You don't have to vow, but if you do, you better pay. And you've all vowed in your marriages. Are you keeping your marriage vows? One last passage, brethren. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This is just a reminder. Let's go out of here excited about the opportunity of giving the Lord Jesus Christ a greater measure of holiness through our lips. Let's vent a spiritually minded heart so that when we open our mouths, out comes Godly words, good words, edifying words. The Bible says, let your, 
It says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. That's Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. But I want Ephesians 5. Verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. There are three terrible sins in the first part of verse 3. Verse 4 adds three more to them. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Remember, if our righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, we shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Right here we have three sins attached to three sins, and those three sins are filthiness. Some of the words that I alluded to are said. Filthiness in our speech, let's clean it up, let's get rid of the dirt, let's get rid of the off-colored jokes, stories, or words. Let's throw them out. And then foolish talking to no purpose, empty, frivolous, light, superficial, wasted words. Foolish talking, jesting, poking, joking, sarcastic. Joke, I've said joking. Trying to be amusing. We want to avoid that. Some in an attempt to get rid of this commandment in, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 4 have, have read it this way. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which is not convenient. Yes. Which is not convenient. Then they say, well, filthiness isn't very good, and foolish talking isn't very good, but there's some jesting that is convenient. But it doesn't say which is not convenient. It says which are not convenient, which means that it applies to all three, and you can only give as much room to jesting as you can to filthiness because of that little verb, are. That's it. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Will you help me guard my mouth? I'll help you guard your mouth. Lord, help us all guard our mouths that we will have pure religion, pure lips, gracious speech, only seasoned with salt, edifying one another, avoiding filthiness, foolish talk, and jesting. And we will only swear by your holy name and only for serious and solemn matters and occasions. Help us, O God. Here we stand this day in Jesus' name. Amen.